Welcome to Clockworks, a Legion podcast. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And it really feels like an eternity since our last episode. Oh, no. No, no, no. But no. we're talking <laughs> this week about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. I hope you don't <laughs> mind. Really? Two puns? <laughs> if we have spotless something something let's try so eternal sunshine of the spotless mind as our more keen-eared and critical thinking listeners may have already noticed is not legion nope we are still not talking about legion because legion is on hiatus we're still waiting impatiently for legion season two to start we're talking eternal sunshine of the spotless mind Jan, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about this movie and who made it and that kind of gobbledygook? Absolutely. <laughs> Eternal, Sunshine of the S- Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a 2004 movie. It's written and direct. Uh, sorry, written by Charlie Kaufman, directed by Michael Gondry. It stars uh, Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet. Kirsten Dunst, Mark Ruffalo, Elijah Wood, Tom Wilkinson. And it's a really surreal look at the mind. Do you want to tell us like the plot, Paul? Yeah, so the plot is not given to us chronologically and is surreal, but I'm going to give you the chronological version of what the story that's told is, which is Joel and Clementine fall in love, have a two-year relationship, after which Clementine decides impulsively to employ the services of a doctor who can erase memories, to erase her memories of Joel. When Joel finds out about this, he reacts by erasing his memories of Clementine, but as his memories are being erased, he changes his mind, tries desperately to hold on to some memory of Clementine. After both their memories have been erased semi-successfully, they find each other again, hear what has happened, They find each other again, find out about the procedure that they've done, but decide to have a relationship anyway, even though they know it's going to end badly. Mm -hmm. And pretty much all of that happens in reverse, not in 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 a real mix mix of chronological order. I mean, most of the movie happens, the real time of the movie is mostly while Joel's memories are being erased. So we find out things that have happened before as Joel remembers them, as the memories are being erased, and it's all very confusing. Uh, Or it's not really that confusing, but it's all very disorienting. Yes, absolutely. So why are we talking about this when this is a show about Legion? In our very first episode of Legion, we talked about some shows and movies that Legion reminded us of, and this is one of them. Mm Mm-hmm. What is it about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that reminds you of Legion? Well, what reminded me before I even watched it was I remember it being surreal and out of order and involved going into someone's memories. Yeah. And that is very much what Legion is about, for part of Legion, is about going into David's memories. So, just yeah, before we even watched it again today... I remembered that and and watching it again I I thought that there was more kind of crumbling of his memories instead of just going dark but even still there is a lot of the the memory work 
reminds me of Legion. It really does. I think as we go forward in this episode talking about the specifics of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, we might point out more specific details that are similar. But certainly, Patonomy's memory work in David's mind on Legion is very similar in feel, in its approach to how to de- visually depict memory, in its surreal approach, in its... Mm-hmm. A lot about it is very uh, reminiscent of this movie and how this movie deals with being in Joel's memory. Mm-hmm. as it's Especially in Joel's memory as it is being altered. Especially in Joel's memory as it is being altered, much like David's memory is being altered or has been altered or controlled by the Shadow King, Mm -hmm. it turns out. But when Patonomy is in David's memory and things don't look the way he expects them to, and it's disorienting even for him in this movie, even the memory experts are disoriented by the way that Joel reacts to his memory being erased. And certainly we, the audience, are, and certainly Joel himself is. And the way that they depict that visually is very surreal and is very... Similar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, the other uh, Noah Hawley world connection, not to Legion, but to Fargo, is that Kirsten Dunst is in this. Yes. As Kir- so little. Like, I mean, she's been an actress since she was, like, a child, but she's so much younger in this than in Fargo yeah. and recent stuff. She was kind of baby-faced and cute. She's still, I mean, she's hilariously baby-faced and will be a baby-faced 60-year-old. Yeah, I'm sure. Because of the dimples. Mm-hmm. So she's just adorable. And uh, M- Mark Ruffalo, too, is very young in this. And it was cute to see him. Yeah. Because I've most recently seen him as, like, Hulk in Thor Ragnarok. And he's quite a bit older now. Yeah, and very, like, grizzled. Yeah, exactly. Currently. Yep. So do you want to get into um, the creator of this, Charlie Kaufman? What, what's your experience? What do you want to say about Charlie Kaufman? It's interesting. I mean, before we even talk about my experience, our specific experiences with Charlie Kaufman, it's very interesting that you just said, I think exactly rightly, that the creator of this Charlie Kaufman, but he's not the director. Yeah. How many screenwriters are there who you would, who we would, like, oh, Charlie Kaufman's the person who made this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, who's the screenwriter of, you just mentioned that Mark Ruffalo was in Thor Ragnarok, for example, who wrote Thor Ragnarok? Not sure. Not, not like, Taika, not, not Taika Waititi. Waititi. I mean, he helped, he contributed to the script, but I don't think he's the credited screenwriter. So usually the person who we think of as having made a movie is the director. But uh, Michel Gondry, we called him Michael, I think, but I just looked him up on Google and he's French. Uh, and so okay. I think so his name is Michel. Michel. Um, Michel Gondry has not directed much else that I have seen has not directed much else that has had the same kind of uh, big impact that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind has. The one thing he has a director's credit for that is kind of similar to this is Flight of the Concords, which has its own surrealism, certainly, especially the credits, frankly, mm-hmm. are visually surreal. And stars our friend Jermaine Clement. Our friend of the show, Jermaine Clement. <laughs> we wish he was a friend of the oh. show. We're the show is his friend, even if he's not ours. That's true. You know that song from uh, Crazy Ex Girlfriend? You're my best friend, and I know I'm not yours, and that's okay. <laughs> We're getting a little off track. Yeah, we're talking about Charlie Kaufman. But Charlie Kaufman, 
screenwriter who wrote this movie is the kind of creative mind behind the movie. Mm-hmm. He's also done uh, the really creative uh, Being John Malkovich and adaptation. He also didn't direct those. I just, I assumed he was a director, but no, no. he's not. His first direct, his directorial debut is Synecdoche, New York, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen and we need to watch yeah, because I'd I like... like so, now that we've said a little bit about Charlie Kaufman, he is the screen, screenwriter. Mm-hmm. But all his movies with different directors from each other are recognizably distinct from other movies that are being made by other people. Mm-hmm. Like, being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you're not going to see these movies because you're a Michelle Gondry fan. You're going to see these movies because you're a Charlie Kaufman fan. Absolutely. And it's what's in common, like, his approach and his themes and everything. So what's your experience with Charlie Kaufman? Just those three movies. Actually, no, I'm not even sure I've seen all of Being John Malkovich. Really? It came, you know, it's it came at a time in my life when I was like, that's weird and just like <laughs> let it go and I never actually saw it since then. Um love adaptation I liked, but man, it was trippy. I love this one. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is my favorite of his, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've seen anything else by him. Yeah, I'm similar. I've definitely seen Being John Malkovich probably twice. Mm -hmm. Um, Adaptation I've seen twice. This movie I probably have seen only twice. This is probably only my second time watching it, but I really like it an awful Mm -hmm. lot. I... I'm kind of surprised at myself that I never saw Synecdoche, 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 New York, because it's a pun on Synecdoche, which isn't city in New York, but Synecdoche is a literary device that I only ever see written down. <laughs> <laughs> Synecdoche? Like, a, I like as in okie dokie. <laughs> sure. I'm surprised I haven't ever seen it, because... I really like everything that he has done that I have seen an awful lot. I watched Being John Malkovich on, like, uh, probably in the TV lounge of my university, Mm -hmm. my undergrad, where you also went. That's how we met each other. Uh, But Adaptation, I think I saw in theaters. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I definitely saw it in theaters. Yeah, we saw it in theaters together, for sure. Yeah. So what is, I mean, what is Charlie Kaufman-ish about this movie? I said a second ago, and we said, like, you go to see a Charlie Kaufman movie because it's a Charlie Kaufman movie, and you kind of have some things you know what to expect from a Charlie Kaufman movie. Well, it's kind of intellectual and meta. Well, yeah. a little meta. Being Joe Malkovich and Adaptation are more meta than this one. Mm-hmm. Especially Adaptation. Especially Adaptation. Um... It's very, it wants to be psychological or wants to be philosophical, mm-hmm. really. It wants to make you think about the human condition. Yeah. I think also oh, psychological. Oh. And psychological, yeah. But like how the mind works and how you, they're very. He's, he's obviously very interested in how the mind interacts with itself. Yeah, very much so. And being John Malkovich is magical realism, mm-hmm. is how we would call that genre. 
All three of those, I would say, are magical realism. Adaptation, is adaptation magical realism? Yeah, there's some magic to it. Yeah, you're right. It's more, though, conspicuously about screenwriting, and it's constantly drawing attention to itself as a filmic artifact. Yes. In a way that Noah Hawley also really likes to do, mm-hmm. especially in Fargo. Yeah. He does remind you that what you're watching is a piece of fiction. Yeah. And then this one is science fiction, basically, is what we would call it. Uh, the device that removes people's memories is not magic, but it functions like magic. The yeah. science behind it is not explained or even attempted to explain. And we don't really care no. about the science of it. Like, that's a... Uh, functionally, Wait. it would make no difference whether they met a wizard who's able to... Uh, manipulate their memories or not like that's he's not interested i think in has science gone too far or any of those no, themes definitely not. but in all three of those movies he is very interested in how does the mind work how does memory work how does identity connect to memory what are you like mm-hmm. and what you said i think is really spot on how the mind interacts with itself yeah do you want to talk about uh the casting of this movie the cast yeah. The other I mean, people involved in making this movie that we see anyway? Well, I mean, they're all great. Mm-hmm. And they're all like, I mean, everyone in this is someone, it's a face I rec- you would recognize. Yep. And I had even forgotten going into it that Jim Carrey is the main character. <laughs> I remembered Kate Winslet and Kirsten Dunst. And suddenly I was like, oh yeah, the main character is Jim Carrey. He... uh this is one of his roles where he's more serious and that's, yeah. you know, this is one of his earliest uh, serious roles. This was a real turn for him after like Ace Ventura and mm-hmm. The Mask. And it was definitely, I really remember the press for this movie being like the key cast, Kate, it's Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey being the opposite of what you would expect. One's the manic yeah. one and the other's the you know, intellectual one and Kate Winslet's the manic one and Jim Carrey's the intellectual quiet one. And that's so weird. Um, How do you think that Jim Carrey does? Is he a good casting choice? Yes. Surprisingly good. I think he does. Like, I think, I mean, I don't think it's surprising now that he can do a serious role, but I think back then it was really surprising how serious of a role he could do. And, but also what he's really good at is, uh, physicality mm-hmm. and manipulating his body physically. And I think, and that works really well in this because he has to constantly be shifting his age and his, uh, his, his interactions are constantly changing and he changes his body based on those. You're thinking specifically, I'm when he becomes a not, child, you're thinking specifically of when he becomes a child. Yes. And yes. And just, uh, his happiness and his sadness, he can manipulate his body very well. Like he has very good body control. One of the things I found that I thought, I agree, he was really good and mm-hmm. was really well cast. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me as I was watching it about him being well cast is he spends so much of the movie, well, when he's in his mind, not so much, but when he's in the real world, what we see of Joel is like very quiet and restrained and looking down and mumbly Mm -hmm. but jim carrey has this energy that you can see that he's 
like holding so much back. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was meaning. It's what you need yeah. for this character. He doesn't if you had a restrained actor playing him, it would be hard to see what Kate Winslet's character, what Clementine saw in him. But or it might be. But yeah. I feel like he plays him so well that like you just get the sense that right beneath the surface there's so much that wants to explode out that never does in the whole movie. Like it does in his memory, but his real world person never does kind of explode out into charisma. Mm-hmm. But you can tell it's there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really helps make Kate Winslet's character believably like there's something beneath the surface and I want to know you and I want to know what's going on in your brain. And he spends all this time in the real world in journals and sketching and Jim Carrey as a very energetic, charismatic, you know, outlandish actor has all that energy still Mm -hmm. even, and you can, there's a big difference between someone holding all that energy back and someone who doesn't have it. Hmm. I think he's really, really well cast for yeah. the even for the very quiet parts, because there's all this depth and like a specific kind of depth, like a depth of energy. Hmm. I like that. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, Kate Winslet is one of my personal favorite actresses. I love her in so many things. Uh, starting with Sense Sensibility is my favorite movie. So one of my favorite movies. So she's American in this. And does a fantastic job on her American accent. I always forget that she's American. It's like flawless. Flawless. But uh, she, yeah, she had been doing these more serious roles. Like she was so famous from Titanic. Mm-hmm. And this drama- very dramatic role. And then to have her be this like manic, well, she's a manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> and to have that manicness and it was, but she is fantastic at it, I think. I always felt, even when it first came out, I always felt like they people talked about it as if both Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet are playing against type. But not really. I don't think Kate Winslet is playing against type that no. much. No, I agree. Because she's, she's much more, or she had at this point in her career already displayed much more versatility than Jim Carrey had at this point in his career. Absolutely. So, like... You, there's a lot in this performance that you can see in Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. Like... Or even in Titanic. Even in Titanic. She's, you know, kind of a wild uh, character in in Titanic also. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I'm, like, when you were saying Titanic is such a dramatic role, and I'm like, well... Yeah, yes Yes and no. And no. Like, yeah. a lot of the movie, she's being very silly, and she's like... Yeah. She's uh, not actually far off from this, to be not, honest. Not that far. Yeah. There's not miles between this. There's the American accent. Mm-hmm. She's American in Titanic. Oh, is she? She's American in Titanic. Oh, man. She's just upper class upper American. Upper class American. It's a different American accent. Yes. But I agree with you completely that uh, although I don't think she's really playing against type in the same way, she's so good. She's mm-hmm. so good as Clementine. Yeah. She has a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And she, I mean, in some ways she is a little over the top and like uh, the whole manic pixie dream girl trope is her, but she's also feels realistic Yeah. in that like, there are definitely people that you know who like dye their hair a new color all the time and call it, and it's to enhance their personality. It's 
um, like she's, she's crazy. Like she's, it feels like this like free spirit, but she also works at Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're talking, I think. I'm sorry, I'm getting into not really the actress, but the role, but. We could do that. But but I just think that she, she does that well. She does that like, she plays it realistically. She plays it straight in terms of like, it's not over the top. It's not clownish. No. And I feel like what I was saying before about Jim Carrey having all this energy that he's uh, holding back is that even when he's holding it all back, it's hard to be opposite Jim Carrey and feel like the energetic one. Yes. Courtney Love did it in Man on the Moon. Right. And Kate Winslet does it here also really well. And like it is partly that he is playing his restraint well, but it's also partly she just seems like she has boundless energy. Yep. And that's hard to do anyway, but it's especially hard to do when you're playing opposite someone who also seems like they have boundless energy, even when they're not acting energetically. Mm -hmm. And she just does it beautifully. I also really like, and this is what you were saying about talking about the character, not just the actor. I think Mm -hmm. I'm already also doing that a little bit, but much like he does, she in her performance gives this character like this nuance and depth that saves mm-hmm. her, I think, from being too manic pixie dream girl. She is, I mean, she's enormously manic pixie dream girl, and we'll talk about that later. But she's a little bit more manic depressive pixie yes. dream girl. Like she's bipolar. I, mean, I don't think she's cl- meant to be clinically, but her performance is a little bipolar. Yes, absolutely. That she's up and she's down and she's intense. And she, even in her up, she plays it with this uh, fragility underneath mm-hmm. that like, you can see in the performance that she is over going overboard with her impulsiveness out of like an insecurity. And Joel's character says that about Clementine late in the movie. But by this point, that point, I think we have already seen it mm-hmm. in her performance that her impulsiveness and her bombastic and her like is all uh, shielding this insecurity that she really puts in that, puts in the wild and, and uh, larger-than-life moments, not just in the quiet moments. And in fact, one of the things I really like about her performance is that uh, she has less insecurity and vulnerability in her quiet moments. Hmm, yeah. Which is right. something that would be easy to get wrong about this character. But I think the more energetic and bombastic and loud and wild she is, the more we can see underneath it this insecurity and fragility. Mm -hmm. So I think she's really, really good. Yep, absolutely. One of my sisters, really at the point in the movie, maybe a little earlier than when this movie came out, but really looked a lot like Clementine (laughs) when this movie was coming out. Like She's very similar hair and changing her hair a lot to bright colors and... She, and similar style of clothing because it was about the same time. And like, it's kind of surprising to me watching this movie how much I think like Clementine looks like my sister and it makes me really like her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And she doesn't look much like her anymore. No. Uh, But at this time, my sister really looked a lot like Clementine looks in this movie. Mm -hmm. What about... uh, 
Speaking of Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst <laughs> is in this movie. She is the, her character in the movie Elizabeth Town, which I have not seen. The phrase Manic Pixie Dream Girl was invented to describe a Kirsten Dunst character. Mm-hmm. And here she is in another movie where she's not the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yep. Except she maybe sort of is again. She almost is. There's a little piece of her that is. Everyone's kind of in love with her. Yeah. Is the thing. Like, I mean, you have Mark Ruffalo. I don't remember his character's name. Stan? Mark? No, Mark is his real name. I'm I'm pretty sure it's either Stan or Dan. This is Stan. (laughs) Stan. Stan is like an old band name. I have to look it up. Look it up if you want, but this is Stan. Could be Dan or Stan. I'm pretty sure his name is Stan. Do, 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 look it up. Going to edit this a little, but not entirely. Stan. His name is Stan Ding Ding Paul Wind. Stan is obviously in love with her. Yep. He's very much like, you know, they have sex, he's in love with her. Uh, Elijah, I mean, Patrick, Elijah Wood is not explicitly in love with her, but he is desperate for her to like him. He keeps which saying, she doesn't. Which she doesn't. He keeps saying how she doesn't like me. She doesn't like me. I'm gonna, she doesn't, look at her. She doesn't like me. And like, you know, he's desperate to have her like him. Yep. And then, of course, Tom Wilkinson, Howard, loves her too in this creepy kind of, yeah, well, very... having an affair with your young secretary kind of way. Yeah. I mean, so that's how other people react to her. And I think that's important in in kind of getting a handle on her performance. What do you think about I Kristen Dunst's performance, though? Performance More is, directly. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, she's great. I mean, they're all great in terms of their performances. She plays, like, her, uh, much like Peggy, even in Fargo, she's uh, wants to be really confident, but has, like, broken underneath the surface. And so, like, she has all this confidence at the beginning of the movie, and then when she finds out that her mind has been, had this procedure. Mm-hmm. She just like, I don't know. I think, I feel like she plays that really, the end part where she's, you know, crushed and disturbed by what has been done to her mind. She plays really well. Yeah. I also think she really captures this naivety in the character that mm-hmm. like she is not particularly bright. Uh she has this book of quotes that she quotes to try to look smart. And yes, absolutely. It doesn't make her look particularly smart because she gets the quotes wrong or she gets the, you know, she calls him Pope Alexander instead of Alexander Pope. And she is desperately trying to look smart to impress Howard. And there's this real, uh, again, vulnerable and naive quality that she puts into her performance that I think is really. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, effective. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I think about uh, Kristen Dunst's characters and think about how much smarter Amy seems. Amy from Little Women mm. seems so much smarter than Mary from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah. Even though they're both, like, trying to use big words to seem smart, Amy, she plays Amy as, like, no, she actually is smart. She's just young. Mm-hmm. And... Mary is like, she's desperate to seem smart, but kind of knows that she isn't 
mm-hmm. as smart as she wants to seem. Yeah. I think she really handles that very well. Absolutely. How about, uh, you were talking about Mark Ruffalo. Do you want to say more about Mark Ruffalo? I mean, he plays nerdy really, like, well. He's, and he's got that, like, he's in love with Mary. She doesn't like him as much as he likes her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he just, like, he's obviously, he plays the perceptiveness really well. Like, he leaves the room yeah. when Howard shows up. Yeah. And, like, if he was a different kind of person, he would stay to, like, block her. I mean, Patrick would stay. And Patrick would stay. Absolutely. Patrick would stay. So, like, I mean, that's the character, not the actor, but I just feel like he plays that so well like that. There's a lot of subtle performances in this. Agreed. And Mark Ruffalo is one of them that, like, it's just that below the surface, things are going on that we don't get to see, but we can sense. Yeah. Agreed. Anything to say about uh, Elijah Wood? I mean, Patrick is less that, I think. Yeah. Less going on underneath the surface. I mean, you want to talk a little bit about Patrick? Patrick is the worst. The worst. And he, Elijah Wood, Mm -hmm. like, plays him so with this wide-eyed stupidity. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, he's similar to Mary in some ways, that he's wide-eyed, naive, except that he's... He's a lot more selfish and a lot more manipulative and a lot more, like, he fails at it, but he's trying to, like, be a manipulative, conniving person. He's just not smart enough to pull it off. Yeah. So it makes him much less likable than she is. I mean, one of the many things that makes him less likable than she is. He's super creepy. Mm -hmm. And does it really well because he is plausibly creepy because he's plays the kind of creepy who like genuinely does not understand why anything he's doing would be creepy. Yeah. Like he plays it so. What's wrong? I I stole her panties. They were clean. Like. Yeah. He just play. He delivers that with so much like, I I don't understand why this would be a problem. Yeah. Like he's the worst. He's the worst. (laughs) And he's an idiot because like he's trying to be Joel to Clementine when like. Joel up with why are you trying to be her, her ex-boyfriend you're dumb yeah. he's just like and he's so unsuccessful unsurprisingly he tries to like say exact lines that Joel has said to Clementine and like of course the situation is different yeah he's just so so like socially dense yeah absolutely and it's yeah he's Specifically, I said he's dumb, but he's specifically socially dense. And the mm-hmm. way he keeps talking about how Mary doesn't like him. Yeah. And the way he keeps talking about he's not, he like, my girlfriend, I have a girlfriend. I'm going to talk about my girlfriend. My girlfriend might be calling. Did mm-hmm. I tell you about my girlfriend? Is just like yep. the kind of socially dense that you have met. Absolutely. This kind of person. Yep. Yeah. I think it's a great performance and an awful character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you want to talk about Howard at all? I'm not sure I have, like, his... What I mentioned to you before, which was, uh, I don't like Tom Wilkinson when I see him, and it's because I think of this role, but then I realize he's Carmine Falcone in Batman Begins. Maybe that's why I don't like him. You know, he often plays kind of like a creepy bad guy. Yeah. He's very... But not in, like, he's in Sensibility with Kate Winslet. As their, he dies at the beginning. He's their father. Oh yeah, right. And he's also uh, 
in the full Monty, which is not right. a villainous character at all. He's great. <laughs> he's great in the full Monty. He's not enormous miles away from Howard. In no, the full Monty exactly. Because in the in this, he is really uh, gross by the end of the movie. But he also plays it so. I mean, he's he's like someone who just barely made the wrong choices again and again. Yeah, yeah. And that makes him really gross because he's manipulating his power and etc. Mm-hmm. But like in the Full Monty, he's playing a pretty close to the same character who just makes better choices. Yeah, that would be right. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So I know we've dwelled a little bit on the actors and talked about the characters some of the time. By the way. But I just wanted to dwell on them for a bit because of how good all the performances are and how yep. much these performances are necessary to sell the movie. Mm-hmm. Like what you've said Absolutely. about several of them, that there's a lot of subtlety in the performances. is very important because a lot of this movie has no subtlety at all. Yes. Uh, but the performances need to have this subtlety to pull the movie together, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's even, that's a similarity to Legion. And, like, we need to have subtlety in those characters because they're, like, superheroes or not quite heroes, but they're these kind of larger-than-life mutants. And it's so you need some subtlety to their personalities. Yeah, just imagine uh, a version of Legion where specifically David and uh, Lenny are are played by not Dan Stevens and not Aubrey Plaza, played by people who can't manage the, like, subtlety, the (laughs) the conflicted confusion of Dan Stevens that Mm -hmm. he always wants to be, you know. Just imagine him played by, you know, William Shatner. (laughs) (laughs) You know, 30 years, 40 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Or imagine Lenny played by, I don't know, so many lesser actors who can't Mm -hmm. give them malice and still seductiveness yep in the same way so do you want to talk a bit about uh the visuals of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and specifically what i wanted to just touch on briefly Mm -hmm. is something we were talking about earlier off mic which is maybe when i say talk about the visuals what i really want to talk about is We were talking earlier about, at its complete heart, this is a movie about how when you erase the bad things in life, you erase good things too. And, like, that's not that profound an idea. Mm -hmm. But what makes it so profound a movie is the ability to depict that idea visually for you. And so that you experience, you represent those ideas visually, and you experience the connection to your lost memories and the attempt to regain those lost memories in a very visceral, visual, Mm -hmm. and emotionally engaging way. Mm -hmm. So the way that this movie puts these very abstract ideas visually on the screen is what makes it so uh, successful and makes it seem so profound when the idea that it is exploring... I mean, there, it's an interesting idea, but it's not like it's a, whoa, the the idea is not philosophically trippy. Yeah. 
Uh, but you kind of feel like you have dealt with philosophically trippy ideas because the visuals are so trippy. Mm-hmm. I want to point out, there's a couple of ways that they do that that I want to point out in his memories. One is, you notice the number of times that things are blank that shouldn't be blank. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, so you have like street signs or storefronts that are suddenly blank. I mean, the bookstore goes yeah. really blank. The books all go backwards. And I, of course, being surrounded by books all the time, really noticed that straight away. And a lot of those things, like the storefronts, like the books, uh, you might consciously notice or you might not consciously notice. But whether you're noticing it consciously or not, you get this sense Mm -hmm. that things are not as they should be. There's this uncanny world where things are, the information is less complex and less dense than you want it to be, than you expect it to be. Mm -hmm. And the books, uh, like, she doesn't have to have worked in a bookstore. I suspect that she works in a bookstore partly so that they could have a shot of books with all the words disappearing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I wonder if he started with that idea and then worked backwards to, well, that's probably where she works. Yeah. And it really reminds me of Legion in, like, oh, the curtains are different. His memories are fading, but also his memories aren't really what is real. So, like, the books on the on the shelves, you just, in your memory, you just fill in what those possibly could be. You don't actually remember every single book on the bookshelves in Barnes & Noble. And Legion is often doing it more subtly. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, I think that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind does it both subtly and uh, in really dramatic ways. So mm-hmm. some of the subtle things I probably didn't notice, but if I went through a third or fourth time, I might. Yeah, you might. But all the things going blank. And then speaking of things going blank, faces go blank mm-hmm. too. Like that's a recurring visual that happens throughout his memories. Yeah. That- and he never actually saw Patrick's face. And so he keeps having these moments where he's trying to see his face and can't. Yeah, and he sees the when it's the back of his head, and he turns him around, and it's still the back of his head, and it's mm-hmm. still the back of his head. Mm-hmm. Another recurring visual uh, element of the visual language of this movie is the way that they will have the camera with a spotlight on it, and then nothing else is lit. So you have a spotlight on whatever the camera is looking directly at, with darkness all around, and mm-hmm. so it'll be on Jim Carrey's face, and then it'll go over to you know, Kate Winslet's face and then, but it's all black all around. Yeah. And that's another very simple, but very effective visual technique to like, the only thing that exists is what he's focusing on right now. Yeah. So there, there isn't anything else beyond what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And because it's not lit, it doesn't exist in kind of visual terms. Mm-hmm. He's also they don't react to the world crumbling around them because it's not actually happening. And so right. like, his memories are being destroyed and you'll see like a car flip over in the middle of the street and they won't react to it at all because it's not actually happening. Yeah. Um, and then another aspect of the visuals of this section that I want to point out is the way that space uh, functions in an unrealistic way Mm -hmm. so for example he'll be walking from one room to another but the door doesn't lead to where it did a second ago he'll walk out a door and then back in and be in a different room Mm -hmm. or uh when the really memorable scene when he's pacing 
up and down the street chasing after Clementine. And no matter which way he walks, he keeps walking back towards his car and away from her. Mm-hmm. And I saw like a making of a featurette years ago of like how they filmed that scene. And it was, you know, surprisingly complicated. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, because it's not like it's a street that's mirrored so that the buildings are the same on both sides. And then they have two cars that they pull out, but then you need to get Kate Winslet ac- or you need to get an actor. You see her back. Yeah. But it, I forget why it was so hard, but they kept being like, no, Jim, stop turning around. No, keep going this way. No, you're walking this way now. And like, it's disorienting even for, for the, actor. the actors and for the like director was like, uh, which way am I, are we going this time? And like trying to keep all that. Hmm. But a lot of these kinds of things, and you can tell, are done with practical effects. Mm-hmm. Like there's, he really is walking down a street where he keeps ending up in the same place. Yep. Or. Or it really is walking from one room into another room because those, it's a set and it don't be connected in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, the, this isn't so much the thing of space, but the other very memorable moment of when they're lying on the ice and she's, Clementine's lying on her side and then she, kind of disappears out of the shot. And I, again, from watching this behind the scenes thing, know that they did that just by like, they tied a rope around her waist and pulled her backwards out Mm -hmm. of sight. Yep. Um, And it really feels like she's moving Mm -hmm. because she is. And then the last thing I want to draw attention to in terms of just how they're using visuals in this movie is the whole scene where he's a child. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of uh, Patonomy. Exactly. It has, has that exact same scene where he's sitting underneath the table. Yeah. And his mom dies. And presumably they did it in the same way where they have, they rebuilt the set, the giant table, and mm-hmm. he sits underneath it. But the way in this movie that they have the perspective on the table so that she's closer to the, ca- like, obviously the table is weird shaped mm-hmm. because he's tiny and then he walks out the far side and reaching up to the fridge, but she's looks giant mm-hmm. and it's all done just with, you know, camera tricks and weird shaped tables. Yeah, exactly. Have you seen any of the behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings where they have Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen sitting at their table and they, he looks tiny and then they just move the camera a little bit and you see that it's a really long table. that's like has a curve in it mm-hmm. so that, you know, it just, he's not sitting where you think he is and Obviously, it's all just optical illusions. They did the same thing very successfully here. Mm -hmm. And those are so uh, successful in being trippy because, you know, I I just honestly believe that your brain is able to detect the difference between something real and something uh, CGI most of the time. Yep. So, you know that they're physically there. You Mm -hmm. know that... This shouldn't work the way it is. Yep. And it's so much more disorienting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they don't just, like, put Jim Carrey's head on a tiny, on, like, a child's body digitally or anything. No. They, like, it's still him, but he's yeah. tiny. Yep. Yeah, it's really cool. So I talk about the themes and uh, ideas of this movie? Well, I mean, you touched on it a bit, that, like, the idea that your memories are 
both good and bad. And if you delete the bad ones, you delete the good ones too. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when I was t- like 22 or whatever, when this movie came out, I was, uh, you know, not really thinking about how, you know, good life can be. I was thinking about, yeah, I do have a bad boyfriend and I'd love to delete him. But like now being in my thirties, um, <laughs> late thirties, <30s, laughs> um, the amount of memories I've built and the amount of like, I can't delete anything without deleting so much good. And like, but it makes you think about it. It makes you think mm-hmm. about how, what good has happened in the bad and what, uh, what, what you would erase if you erased someone from your life. Yeah. And how memory shifts. Yeah. How, how you feel like, oh, our relationship was always bad or this, right. you know, this person was always terrible and your memories can't be trusted. Yeah. And that's like so similar to Legion and like, what are your memories? It makes me feel like, uh, you know, what, mo- what movie really did a fantastic job of expressing that idea inside out. Hmm. Yes. Where sadness touches the memory and it's a sad memory now. Yeah. And then when he goes back, when Joel goes back over his relationship with Clementine, the way that they show it is moving backward so that like their relationship as any relationship that ends, right. Mm -hmm. Gets worse because, or like, you know, you have good times and then the bad things eventually get so much that you can't continue in the relationship anymore. And that's why relationships end. Yeah. And so as he goes backwards, their relationship gets better and better. But it's all, but the way they present it by showing us the bad first means that for us, as for him, the bad is coloring everything that we see good that happened earlier. Yeah. Like late in their relationship. I think the last time, that's the last time he saw her, Mm -hmm. she, you know, came home drunk and had smashed his car and was, you know, and there's other things about that, but Earlier in their timeline, but later in the watching of the movie, we see them like out for dinner and he, she's like, oh, do you want another beer? No, thanks. And so she, oh, she drinks it and you're because you've already seen that their relationship's going to mm-hmm. end because she came home drunk and uh, lots of other reasons. But yeah. one of the catalysts of the end of the relationship is that she comes home drunk. Then when you see the earlier memory of them being out for dinner and her having like an extra beer and he doesn't. You're like, oh, she drinks too much, even back now. Even when they first met. Even when they first met. She's looking for a drink. Yep. She goes into the house and tries to find a drink. We have to find the alcohol. And like, he at the time, that doesn't stand out to him at all. But because we've seen it backwards, our perception of her is colored by like, she's probably an alcoholic, right? Yeah. Or at least she drinks too much. Yeah. Uh and we know that, and he does too, because he's been going through his memories backwards too. Mm-hmm. It's all very interesting how memory is shifting and mm-hmm. is colored. And as you say, just like in Legion, the memories aren't reliable because they're not real mm-hmm. in some kind of way. 
I think both Legion and this are very interested in are memories real? What is the relationship of memory to the real objective world? Mm-hmm. I feel like um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind essentially lands on saying memories are unreliable, but there's a real world that's really out there that your memory can't really control. And that's why Clementine and Joel like love each other, whether they remember it or not, they go back to the same place and they end having heard a tape of them, of each of them complaining about each other, but they decide to start a relationship again anyway, Mm -hmm. because the philosophical position of the movie is remember it, don't remember it. The world is as it is. Yep. I feel like Legion's philosophical position is not that. No. That the memories actually in Legion actually change what, exists in the world. Mm-hmm. And specifically when Potonomy says that objects have their own memory is an important part for that, that like objects in the real world have memory and you can, he can read their memories because the past exists in memory and nowhere else. Right. Yeah. We should maybe, while we're talking about the philosophy and the themes and the big ideas of the movie, What's the title? Oh, it comes from the Alexander Pope quote. The Alexander quote. Pope quote that um, Mary quotes. I don't remember the whole quote, and I'm not going to look no. it up now, but it's a quote about how great it is not to be able to remember things, the eternal sunshine mm-hmm. of the spotless mind. mind. Yeah. I mean, it's ignorance is bliss. Yes. Is the other, is the real way of saying it. or The simple language the simple version language. of that quote. It was, and, yeah, I just, there is a blissfulness to not remembering, but there is so much, too much danger in it. And it's interesting that that quote, that's the title of the movie, gets put in her mouth, like, minutes before she discovers that her mind is spotless in a way that she would rather it not be spotless. Yep, Absolutely. And that the spotlessness of her mind does not lead to eternal sunshine. Mm-hmm. And she decides that it's better to know things. Yeah. Uh, so just like, I mean, it may be statingly obvious, but the title of the movie is ironic. Yes, absolutely. That the position There's of no the movie. There's no eternal sunshine. Yeah. And even in like, uh, what do you think happens to Joel and Clementine after the movie? That's such a good question. I think they have another two-year relationship and then break up again. Yeah. I think not even that Maybe long. not two years. Maybe yeah. they know no. I think, I think generally they're doomed. Yeah. And because they might be able to try and go in with their eyes wide open this time, but they're still irritated with each other and going to end up in the same irritations. And, uh, and so like the eternal sunshineness, you might think like, Oh, well they get a new start, a fresh start from their relationship, but there's no eternal sunshine. I don't think there's any way that they live happily ever after, after this. I mean, and in terms of their relationship, like, again, it might be stating the obvious, but I'm going to just say out loud the things that are obvious that they might 
have had a good relationship after this if they had been able to learn from the mistakes they made the last time. Mm -hmm. But the whole deal is that they haven't learned anything from the mistakes they made last time. So they're going to make all the same ones, even though they've heard each other describe each other's faults. They haven't learned anything about themselves. Yep. They've learned a little bit about what to expect from the other person. Mm -hmm. But like during, while he's erasing his memories, Joel has kind of learned that he should have shared all the thoughts in his journal with Clementine. He kind of comes to that epiphany while his memories are being erased. Yeah. And she says to him both in their first meeting and then again in their, like, at the end of the movie, Mm -hmm. she has her speech about guys think I'm a concept. I'm not a concept. I'm just a screwed up girl who's trying to get my own peace of mind. Mm -hmm. And in his memory... He says, I remember that speech so well. I still thought you were going to save me, and even though you said that. Yeah. And then she says the same line at the end of the movie, and he doesn't remember that he has learned that, no, listen to this. Yeah, exactly. So we know by the end of the movie that he still thinks that she's a concept who's going to save him. He still thinks that she's his manic pixie dream girl. Mm-hmm. But I, one of the things I like about... We said we'd come back to Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Right, yes. Let's talk about Manic Pixie Dream Girl. She, they, they lampshade that mm-hmm. she's a Manic Pixie Dream Girl in that speech. Yeah. That she says, you know, guys see me as, she doesn't use the phrase, but guys see me as a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Mm-hmm. But I'm just a girl. Yeah. Who's, you know, a person with my own problems trying to figure out life. I'm not here to save you. And he sees through it by the end of, like, that's how you get people to like you. Yeah. And I feel like it's one of the things that redeems the movie somewhat. I mean, the deal with tropes is that every particular incarnation may have things about it that uh, make it worthwhile and valuable in that specific instance. But the fact that we keep coming back to these same ideas is the problem. Mm-hmm. So... The Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope is a trope that's sucky. Yeah. I'm not trying to say it isn't. But in this particular movie, the way that they draw attention to it and that in world, she is a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Like, in world, she is Mm -hmm. larger than life, manic, acting crazy, and people in world explicitly see her as someone who's going to draw them out of themselves and save them. And she says, like... Um, that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. That's not who anyone is. Yeah. I'm an actual person. Yeah. Lose some points, I think, for the fact that the whole movie is in Joel's head. Yes, yeah, so we don't see anything that Clementine learns at all. No. I mean, they kind of trick us into thinking that maybe we see something she learns because his memory of her learns things. Mm-hmm. But, like, we're never in her head. We don't get any real sense of what she yeah. thinks about the world, and that's... Too bad. Yeah. I think it's, I I understand why it's necessary that this movie has a really limited perspective. Uh, But it's too bad that it. Yeah, it is very much. It it makes that speech a little less, uh, makes me a little less convinced that Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry believe that speech. Yes. Because they don't show us anything about what's real about her. Yep. Only what he sees in her. Mm-hmm. 
Joel is uh, a little like David in Legion, where he's uh, kind of spaced out and the world is happening around him, I felt like. Mm-hmm. That was a similar thing. Yeah, totally. Where Joel is just all focusing on him and then the world is just collapsing around as he goes. I want to point out uh, two uh, little moments that I want to notice or talk about. And one is just that the credits, the opening credits, first of all, they happen very late in the movie. Very late in the movie. We get the chronologically very near the end of the movie where Joel and Clementine meet each other again after having both erased their memories. Mm-hmm. We get that whole story happening without really knowing what is happening or what is what their relationship with each other. It's all very mysterious. And then yeah. we have the credits and then we go back to how this all started. And I think, first of all, the placement of the credits quite a bit into the movie is really interesting because now our story begins. Yeah. It's like a much better version of, yeah, yeah. that's me. I suppose you're wondering how I got into this mess. Yeah. Right. It functions the same way as that does. Yeah, Absolutely. And then the other thing is just the visuals, the credits fade away, Mm. uh, which is a little uh, subtle note of what this movie is going to be about, that the words come up on the screen and they all just fade fade. slowly away. That's really cool. Like patchy, they Mm. fade in in chunks. And the other thing I wanted to mention, the other little minor detail, is the company is Lacuna. Mm -hmm. A Lacuna is, I mean, it's a hole, but specifically in my uh, professional academic life, a lacuna in a manuscript is a section of a manuscript that's been damaged or excised or is missing. Hmm. So there's, you know, a half a page is missing of this manuscript. That half page is a lacuna. Really? So a lacuna is a technical term in manuscript studies of like a section that's missing. Just That's to like, cool. That's clever. I like yeah. that. That's something that you would catch that not a lot of people would about like what the company's name means. I wondered if it meant something, but huh. I mean, I, it means whole outside of that context. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for sure that Charlie Kaufman is, I think, I imagine he is mm-hmm. referencing the manuscript meaning. Mm-hmm. But like it can also mean any kind of whole. Cool. Any details you want to point out or um, thoughts? I think I, ha- or- I think I have already. There's a couple of like, uh, there was a funny moment at the beginning where uh, with David, Cr- his friends are played by David Cross and Jane Adams, right. and they have this like kind of long-term marriage relationship that's uh, more mundane than Joel and Clementine but they have a moment where she she just dumps his laundry on him. It's like, this is all your laundry. They're having <laughs> like, a fight. They're having a fight. And she's holding laundry. And she just, like, dumps his laundry on him. And that was very relatable <laughs> in terms of, like, that's what a long-term, longer-term marriage might include. Like, we don't know that they're married, but a longer-term relationship. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I really like it. It was a great moment because of the way that she just, like, He's folding laundry throughout the whole scene. And she's like, this is your laundry. Throws it at him all <laughs> unfolded again. He's like, what? <laughs> He's so dumb, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anyway, that's just a little funny yeah, thing. Yeah, totally. 
Well, this was uh, fun talking about Eternal Sunshine. There's, I think there's a lot more connections to Legion than any of the other movies we've talked about. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like, I mean, who knows ever, uh, but it seems to me that the connections to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind are more conscious. Yes, Especially the, the under, under the table scene, I think, is deliberately referencing that. The other movies that have reminded us may be connections in our mind only. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this is a connection that is also in the makers of Legion's mind. I agree. Yeah. All, All right. right. So this was fun. This, this uh, was made possible by patrons. And so thank you so much to, the, to those people who, who support us on Patreon. If you want to be one of those people who support us on Patreon. <laughs> you can find us there, patreon.com slash clockworkscast. As always, we love interacting with people. We'd love to hear your thoughts on anything that you love about Legion or Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. Or that you hate about it. Or like, that you hate about it. Yeah, you know, we're open to anything. I know sometimes in the way when I listen to podcasts, I sometimes feel like I liked this and I'll let you know. I didn't like this. I'm not going to let you know because I don't want to be a jerk about it. And like, don't be stupid. Paul's stupid voice makes me want to scratch my ears out. I don't, I'm not craving that necessarily. (laughs) But like, if you disagree with us, please do let us know. We won't be hurt by that. Absolutely. Anyway, you can do that on Twitter at ClockworksCast. We are also on Reddit, on Instagram, on Facebook, on all the places that you might find that it's always Clockworks Cast. And um, if you like this and want to especially want more people to find out about it as we're approaching Legion Season 2, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and let the world know that this is the, your preferred Legion podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or, or second preferred or whatever. Whatever. It's one of them. It's one of them. I cannot wait for season two of Legion. And once season two of Legion starts, we will be recording an episode of Clockworks every week. Every time there's every time there's an episode of Legion. Yeah. Yep. So our schedule during this break is a little erratic, but once Legion season two starts, so will Clockworks season two. So you can look forward to that. It's gonna be fun and intense time. Can't wait. All right. Thanks for listening. I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. Goodbye.